So the title of part five is this, why pray? I mean, why should we really pray? Now, it's interesting, if, if I were to preach about how to pray and if, if, you, if I make you feel like it's the right thing to do, Christian women will pray because they think it's the right thing to do. I find that Christian men don't do anything unless it's productive and bears fruit. A man would rather watch TV or hang out with his dog or go on a walk or whatever than to do something that he feels is a waste of time. And unfortunately, I believe a lot of Christians don't pray often because they feel like it really doesn't do anything. So if I were to ask all of you, straightforward right in your face, does prayer really work? Does prayer actually change things? Do things happen? Do you literally see things? That can things change in our world through prayer? If I asked you that, all of you would say what? Yeah. Now you say that because you're in church. No. But I, if I gave you some truth serum... And I said, does prayer actually, actually work? You would probably say, yeah. Okay, if the answer is yes, then why don't we all pray more? I mean, why don't we pray? If, if it works, why are we on Facebook and not praying? Or why are we watching TV and not praying? Or why are we complaining and not praying? Or why are we worrying and not praying? If we really believe that. And I think y'all really do believe that prayer changes things. But I want to prove to you theologically. Why we should pray. Now there's three reasons why I think a lot of people don't pray. And these three reasons are actually attributes of God. And reasons we should pray. But they don't understand God very well. So I'm going to explain it to you. Here's three reasons people don't pray. One is this. They think God will do whatever he wants to do. That's what a lot of people think. They think well, why should I pray? Because God's going to do whatever he wants to him. He's God. He's all powerful. He's sovereign. He'll do whatever he wants to. He can do Anything, So he doesn't need me. That's what a lot of people think, right? In fact, I've heard Christians say, just trust the sovereignty of God. Just trust the sovereignty. Of, and they don't understand that attribute of God very well. And they think, well, no matter what I do, God's going to do whatever he wants to. I'm just a little gnat. I'm one of billions and billions and billions and billions of people that have lived on earth. Is my prayer really going to do something? Because God's all powerful. He can do what he wants to. Here's the second reason people don't pray. God won't change. I mean, he can't change. If he's got a plan, he's not going to change it. If God decides this is what's going to happen, can I really? I mean, is my prayers really going to cause God to do something different than what he was going to do? That's an attribute of God they don't understand. Here's the third reason. And, and let me say this about number two. It's basically the whole case sera, sera. Whatever will be, will be. It's going to happen anyway. Why should I pray? Okay, point number three is this. If, if prayer works, why is there so much evil everywhere? Why are children dying of starvation? Why did the bullet come out of the gun and shoot my loved one? Why did the bomb blow up? Why is there all these horrible things? Why did my friend get raped? Why did my, my, other, my, my parents go through a divorce and cause me all this pain? If prayer works, why then is there evil everywhere? And people don't understand. These are actually describing three main attributes of God of why we should pray, not why we shouldn't pray. Are you excited at all? Okay, thank you for faking it. I really appreciate that so much. It means a lot to me. So number, number one is this. Ready? We pray because God is sovereign. We actually pray because he's sovereign. Now, people don't understand what sovereign means, and I'm going to explain it. But Jeremiah 32, 17 says, Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and earth, and nothing is too difficult for you. In other words, you can do anything because you are sovereign over the universe. And that's true, but that is not a reason we shouldn't pray. It's actually a reason we, we should pray. And here's what sovereign means. It doesn't mean God can do whatever he wants. It means he's the supreme ruler of the universe. 
Sovereign is more of a position than anything, really. Uh, reign, R-E-I-G-N, would, um, would be ruler or in charge, and sovereign would be supreme. So God is the supreme ruler of the universe, and God is supernatural, and he's all, he has all power. All power. So here's what's going on. Um, God has all authority of the universe. He is in charge. He's head over everything. In his position of sovereign authority, in that position, he chose, through that position of being able to do whatever he wants to do, he chose to give stewardship of the earth to you and I. He chose to give us the power or the authority to bring him into this place whenever we want to or desire to through prayer. Now, I'm going to show you a scripture that you're not going to understand, but I'm going to explain it, then you'll get it. Whenever you study scripture, there are four main things you look at when you study scripture. The first one is this, the historical value of it. Uh, what is the, what's going on in the world when I read this passage? The second thing is this, the geographical value. In other words, uh, where is the nation of Israel during this time? Are they in, in Babylon? Are they in Egypt? Are they in their own nation? Are they in bondage? Where is Israel geographically while I'm reading this? Third thing is this, revelational. And a lot of denominations will, um, will skip this, but revelational is what is God speaking to me as I read this? When I read David and Goliath for the 2,000th time, what is God saying to me this time? Because every time I read it, God says something different. And then the fourth and what we're going to look at right now, the messianical view. Uh, the messianical view is how does this point to Jesus? And there's a lot of times all through the Old Testament especially where you don't understand something. And it's like, why is this in the Bible? It's because there's a messianic meaning. How does this story or this scripture point to Jesus? Okay, So I'm going to read you a scripture that you're not going to really understand. But then I'm going to explain the messianic value behind it. Do you understand that? Say, oh yeah. Okay, Jeremiah 32 verse 8 says this. And this is Jeremiah speaking. Just as the Lord said, my cousin Hanamel came to me. Now, Hanamel was Jeremiah's father's brother's child. That's what a cousin is. You understand that? If you're from Aner, you should definitely understand that. So, it, wait, wait, I'm just kidding. So, so, there was Jeremiah's father had a brother, and the brother, who was Jeremiah's uncle, had a son, and that's Hanamel, okay? Hanamel comes to Jeremiah and says, Listen, buy my field in Anathoth, for the right of redemption is yours, and the right of inheritance is yours. Buy it for yourself. Verse 9. So I bought the field from Hanamel for 17 shekels of silver. I signed the seal deed, which contained the apple terms and conditions. See, y'all thought that apple came up with that. God came up with that a long time ago. Check the box if you were the terms and conditions. As well as the open deed or the unsealed copy. And then I purchased the land. Okay, so didn't that scripture really bless your heart? Didn't you really enjoy that so much? Okay, so Jeremiah is talking about two rights, the right of inheritance, the right of redemption, and he's talking about two deeds, a sealed deed and an open deed. So here's most likely what happened. Jeremiah's father, when he was a young boy, died, and he and his mom did not have money to live off of, and he was too young to work the land and make money. So they go to somebody they know. In this case, they went to one of their distant relatives. They went to Hanamel's father and said, listen, buy this property so we can have money, and so he bought the property. So now Jeremiah and his mom have money to live off of. Once Jeremiah was old enough to kind of have his own business, work his own property, do his own thing, those people came to him, in this case Hanamel, and said, listen, the right of inheritance is yours and redemption by this land. You understand that so far? Here's why they came to Jeremiah. Jeremiah was the firstborn of his father. The right of inheritance means, this is how God taught them how to do business. The right of inheritance is this. Whoever owns this land over here, 
At any point when their bloodline dies off, when there's no one left in that immediate family bloodline, if Hanamel did not have a kid, when Hanamel died, Jeremiah was going to get that land back anyway. If he outlived Hanamel, assuming he's going to outlive his cousin, here's why. Jeremiah's father was the original owner. That's the right of inheritance. The right of redemption is this. At any point when Jeremiah is old enough, he can go to whoever has that land and says, listen, the right of redemption is mine. In other words, that, that property belonged to my family first. My father was the original owner. God gave it to him. I got proof. So at any point I want to, I can go to whoever owns it and say, listen, that, that, that land belongs in my family line. That belongs to us. So we get first right of refusal. We're going to buy it back from you. At any point, they could buy back any point. Here's how they could do it. There was an unsealed deed. The unsealed deed was what you signed when you sold the property from one person to the next. It had Jeremiah's uncle's name on there, and then before he died, he wrote Hanamel on there. And then if Hanamel wanted to sell it, they'd write that person's name on there. But here's how they knew the right of redemption. Because that family line, whoever's next in that bloodline, in this case, the firstborn son of the father, which is Jeremiah, anybody say, oh, that, that belonged to us. That was my father's. That originated in my family. We don't believe you. No, no, no. I can buy it back. I have the right of redemption. We don't believe you. Here's what happened. The closed deed, the unopened, the, the sealed deed always stayed with the original owner. The sealed deed always stayed with whoever was the original owner of the property. So anytime they say, okay, they call the elders of the town together. We're about to break open the seal because we're going to prove this land was in our family. So we want the right of redemption to buy it back. Do you understand that so far? I can say it again if, 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 if it would help. Right of inheritance, if they die, it goes back to them. Right of redemption, I can buy it back anytime. But I need proof, so I have to break open the unsealed deed. Because the, the, uh, the unsealed deed, that I have to break open the sealed deed, I'm sorry. Because the unsealed deed had everybody's name on it. The sealed deed had the original family's name. You got that? Okay. Here's how it points to Jesus. Here's the messianic point of this story. Who created the earth? He's the original owner. It belonged to him before it belonged to anybody. He made it. Who did God give the open deed the unsealed deed, who did God give that to? Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve was given the unsealed Now, God held on to the sealed deed because he's the original owner. But the unsealed deed he gave to Adam and Eve. Um, in fact, I'll show you Genesis 1.26. Right after he created mankind, he said this. Let man have complete authority or dominion, some translations say, over the entire earth. I'm giving you the open deal. It's unsealed. It's yours. Adam, do with it as you please. You get a free will. This is all. Everything is yours. The whole thing belongs to you. Who did Adam and Eve lose the unsealed deed to? Satan. Satan slithers in the garden. He takes dominion and authority over the earth. In fact, I'm going to read you a scripture that you know, but now it's going to click a little bit. Matthew 4, 8, when Satan takes Jesus up to tempt him on the mountain, he says this, I showed you all the kingdoms of the world. And here's what Satan said. All these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus didn't say, no, you can't do that. Because Satan knew he took it, rightfully so, from Adam and Eve. He had the open deed. And he said, Jesus, I'll give it back to you if you worship me. I'll give you all this that I have dominion and authority over. But here's the good news. God held on 
to the seal deed. He's the original owner. And guess who his firstborn son is that has a right of inheritance and redemption? Jesus. Now, Jesus could have waited. He has the right of inheritance. He's the closest relative to the original owner. He has, so whenever, after the thousand-year reign that you read about in Revelation, and God throws Satan in the bottomless pit and all the demons are destroyed, Jesus could wait until then to take back authority. Because he's going to get it back when they're all dead and gone. When the, when the owners that have it now, the open deed, Satan, he could take it all back. But Jesus decided 2,000 years ago to exercise his right of redemption and not only buy back the authority of the earth, but buy back all the people that are on it as well. And I'm going to read you a scripture that I've read a thousand times, and every time I read it, it blows my mind. Revelation 5 verse 1 says this, I saw a sealed scroll in the hand of him who sits on the throne of the, the sovereign God is on this throne, holding the, the sealed scroll. And a mighty angel said, who has authority or who has the right to break the seal? Verse 5, then one of the elders said to me, don't cry. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah has won the victory and he can break open the seal. Verse 6, and I saw Christ bearing scars like he had been slain. And Christ took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Because Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And they sang, worthy are you to take the scroll and break its seals. For your blood has redeemed us for God. Jesus didn't just want the earth. He wanted you. So he purchased you back to him 2,000 years ago. And guess who Jesus regave authority of planet earth to? All of us believers. Luke 10, 19. I have given you authority over all the power of the enemy even. Satan's like, oh no. Satan had the authority. And then Jesus said, nope, nope. I'm putting you over Satan. Uh, Matthew 16, 19, I give you the authority of the kingdom and whatever, here's prayer, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. You say, well, God can do whatever he wants to. No, he can't. God gave us the authority so that we can pray to the supreme ruler of the universe and we can choose to bring him into this situation and bring healing. We can choose to pray to the sovereign God and bring deliverance into this situation. We can pray him into our families. We can pray him into the White House. We can pray him into the schools. It's up to us because we have authority now. We have the authority. He's given it. The, well, why doesn't God just go, no, no. It's the supreme ruler he chose to give us the authority to have our free will to bring him into any situation we want to through prayer. That's why we should pray. That's why we should pray. Um, there's a true story by a, a woman named Amy Wilson Carmichael. She was the most famous female missionary in the late 1800s and the early 1900s. And Amy was born in Ireland. She, she was a missionary for 55 years. She was born in Ireland. And in Ireland, all of her friends had blue eyes. And she was born with brown eyes. So for 10 years of her life, for an entire decade, every single night, she prayed two prayers. God, use me in a great way for you and change my brown eyes to blue. Every night, this was her prayer. Every morning, the first thing Amy would do, she'd go straight to the mirror, look inside the mirror. She'd see her brown eyes and be so disappointed, so discouraged. She continued to pray. It got to the point where she says, after about eight, nine, ten years, where she almost stopped asking God to use her because he would not answer the prayer about turning her brown eyes to blue. She started to get frustrated with God. 
At one point, a few years later, she decided to accept the call into ministry. She wanted to be a missionary, so she goes to the missionary board. She says, I have a heart for China. They said, we don't need you in China. We want to send you to India. She thought, another prayer, God's not answering. He's all-powerful. He can do anything. I want him to use me. I want him to change my brown eyes to blue, and I wanted to go to China. They send her to India. When she gets there, she discovers that all through India, this is the late 1800s, the families are keeping their young boys to work and to make money even as children, and they're selling all of their daughters into sex trafficking and sex slavery in the middle of the city, in the most popular building in the city. They're keeping their daughters chained up in a basement all through the days and nights to make money off of them. Amy was so disheartened about this. She could not believe this was happening. So she decided to start a ministry of her own to where she would work, 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 save up money and buy the freedom of one of these girls. It was very expensive, very expensive because the, the, the people that, 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 that had the girls in slavery, they had to decide how much you know, can we make for this long and how much can we make. So it was very expensive, very expensive. If they found out she was from Ireland, they would have her killed because they would not do business with an outsider. So when she finally saved up enough money, she'd have to put coffee grounds all over her face to make her skin look dark. She'd wear the Indian garb is what they call it, that women wear that cover up everything. She'd get enough money, she'd go in and she'd buy one of the, one of the young girls freedom. She'd buy their freedom from slavery. She did this year after year after year. In fact, it got so popular, people from all over the world began to send her money to buy the freedom of these young girls. Even the Queen of England invested into her missionary, into her missions that she had there. Over, I mean, 100% of the girls she freed, 100% accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. 75% of them stayed there with her. They built an orphanage, and then those girls would work, save up money, and then go buy the freedom of another girl. In her 55 years of ministry, she saved over 1,000 girls from slavery. And to this day, 120 years later, that work is still going on in her name, not just in India, but all over the world. Amen. Remember, for 10 years, she had those two prayers. One day, she's a middle-aged woman doing her thing, getting ready to go and buy another woman from, from slavery, getting ready to purchase someone's freedom. She's looking in the mirror. She puts the coffee grounds all over her face to make her face dark. She puts on the Indian garb where you can only see the top of her face and her eyes. And she heard a sovereign God speak to her and say, the reason I never changed your brown eyes to blue so I could use you in such a miraculous way to save over a thousand girls from slavery. The reason we pray to a sovereign God because he's all powerful, he knows what's best and he comes into our life and he answers the prayers that need to be answered and he's so good that he doesn't answer the prayers that don't need to be answered. Second Chronicles 7.14 says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. And if they will pray, here's what I promise to do. Hear them from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. Points two and three are much shorter, I promise. Point number two is this. We pray because God is immutable. I'm sure that's not a word that you've used anytime recently in a sentence. Um, but mutable, if you think about the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, if you know who they are, they started off as turtles and they mutated into ninjas. That's in the book of Leviticus. You probably haven't read it. <laughs> you probably still wouldn't read it, even if you believe that. But anyway, the book of Leviticus is a very hard book. But it, no, that's not what's in there. But anyway, so mutable, mutate, means to change. 
mutate like the X-Men. They mutate. They get better. They get stronger. They can change. The I am before it means it can't change. In other words, people say, well, why should I pray God can't change? You're right. God cannot change, but you don't understand the theology of it. It doesn't mean God can't change his mind. It means God can never change his character or who he is. In other words, he's good. He'll always be good. He'll never not be good. He's, he wants to show mercy. He always wants to show mercy no matter what you've done. He wants to bless you. He always, he never doesn't want to bless you. He always wants to do that because he cannot change his character is the reason we should pray. Malachi 3.6, I am the Lord, I change not. James 1.17, God in whom there is no variation for he is perfect and he never changes. If God could change, then that means he's not perfect. If he can mutate, then he's not perfect. But see, he's already perfect. He's already, be he can never get any better. He's best. So he can never change who he is. Now, I'm going to show you theologically how God can change his mind. And I want you to see if you can pick up why God changed his mind. Okay. Exodus 32, 10. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen the rebellious people. I will destroy them. He brings them out of slavery. He does great things, gives them gold and jewels, and he wants them to build them a church. And he, they worship their money instead of worship God. They worship gold. He's upset. He said, I will destroy them. Exodus 32, 11. So Moses prayed. Verse 14. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. He changed his mind because someone prayed. Jonah 3, verse 4. God told Jonah, go and tell them this. In 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. Let me ask you a question. Was Nineveh destroyed? No. no. In fact, that's why Jonah, you know why Jonah didn't want to go do this? You know why he went the other way? Because he knew God never changes and he's always wanting to show mercy. And Jonah knew he was going to look like a moron if he goes and says, God said he's going to destroy you. He knew what would happen. Verse 8 through 10, the king of Nineveh said, everyone must pray to God. Perhaps God will change his mind. God saw what they did, so he changed his mind and did not punish them as he said he would. Once again, prayer calls God to do what he actually wanted to do, which was show mercy. Now, let me show you a scripture where nobody prayed. Ezekiel 22, 30. So I looked for agent. I looked for just one person. I looked. I did. I looked. I searched out to find somebody who would stand in the gap. You see, stand in the gap. There's four English words. There's one Hebrew word that means intercession or intercessor prayer. Intercessory. It means bridge. It means connect. I look for one person that would connect me, God said, to the situation. I look for one person that would pray for this child. I look for one person that would pray for peace here. I look for one person that would bring me, that would call me into this place and connect me to them. I tried to find one person who would stand in the gap so I wouldn't have to destroy it. Because God's perfect justice demanded judgment. And he said, I found none. Therefore, I poured out my wrath on them, says the sovereign Lord. I didn't want to do it. I wanted to show mercy, but nobody would pray. I wanted to heal the land, but nobody would pray. I wanted to save this person, but nobody would pray. I wanted to open up a door, but nobody would pray. I looked and I looked. Acts 12, 3, King Herod began to persecute the church. He had James killed by the sword. Right after Herod kills James, he goes and arrests Peter, and he's about to kill Peter. And verse 5 through 7 says, while Peter was in jail, the church never stopped praying. That night, an angel appeared and rescued Peter from the jail. James and Peter, same situation. The Bible never says anybody prayed for James. The Bible says the church never stopped praying for Peter. God opens the door and delivers him. 
I mean, this is how God, God wants to do this for us. He's just waiting for somebody who's willing to pray. Samson would have never had the strength to destroy the Philistines if he hadn't have prayed. Jairus' daughter would have never been healed if he hadn't have prayed. Hezekiah would have died 15 years earlier if he hadn't have prayed. The thief on the cross would be in hell if he hadn't have prayed. Elijah would have never had rain and people would have starved to death if he hadn't have prayed. Paul and Silas would have died in jail if he hadn't have prayed. Nehemiah would have never completed his job if he hadn't have prayed. What is not going to happen in your life if you don't pray? What is, what is not going to take place in your life because you're not praying? Who is God not going to help? How, what wisdom are you not going to get? What strength are you not going to receive? Who in your family line is not going to give their life to Christ unless you pray? We pray because God always, always, always wants to bless us. Always. And he'll never change that if we'll pray. 2 Chronicles seven fourteen again. If my people who were called by my name humble themselves and pray, I'll hear from heaven, I'll forgive their sin, and I'll heal their land. The biggest word in this whole scripture is the word if. Wow. Point number three is this. We pray because God is good. We pray because he's good. I don't understand why this is so difficult sometimes for people to, to understand. They go through bad things or bad things happen and they want to blame God for it. It says in Psalms 119.68, you are good and you do good. And let me explain something to you theologically. God is not good because he does good. He does good because he is good. In other words, he can't do bad. He only does good. Here's why. He is good. It's not like, well, you know what? God's done this and this and this for me, so he's good. No, 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 no. God is good. That's why he did this and this and this and this for you. God only does good. So when we pray, he comes in, he only does good, only does good. And you say this, well, if God is so good, why did he create such a messed up world? And here's the answer to that. He did. We did. Um, uh, violence, murder, um, bombs, blown war, uh, selfishness. Uh, greed, um, sickness, disease, COVID, all of that are advertisements, listen, of your and my free will. All of that is advertisements of our free will. So, here's, so let me explain something to you. Um, there's only two options because you think if God is good, why are children starving in Africa? If God is good, why is this war going on? Why did this person die? Why is there disease? If God is good, why is this happening? So there's two ways we can fix that, okay? Here's the first way. We can ask God to change us from free will moral agents into robots and force us to only do the right thing. In fact, everybody that's ever hurt you or caused you pain, why don't we ask God to force those people to only do the right thing? Reach in and take out their free will, make them do the right thing. We'll make people, let's ask God to make them send their money to the kids in Africa starving. Let's ask God to make people have peace and not violence. Let's ask God to make people forgive. In fact, let's start with you. So why don't we ask God for you to be forced to only do the right thing? Let's start with your finances. So we're going to ask God to make you sell everything you have, live in a one-bedroom apartment. All that extra money can go to helping people who are dying of starvation and in other horrible areas. Then we'll ask God to make you only eat things that cause you to live longer so you can help more people and do more good. So no more sweets, no more Krispy Kreme, no more Starbucks, none of that, only raw vegetables and water. Because we want you to live a long time and be healthy so you can stay and help more people on planet Earth. Does that sound good so far? I don't think it does either. Here's the other option. 
we can pray for God to change our hearts and help us do the right thing and help us do good and help us be good stewards of what he's given us. We can pray for God to bring peace into our government. We can pray for God to open up doors. We can pray for God. We can pray to a God who's always good all of the time and always does good and is good and will always be good. We can pray him into our lives and ask him to change things around us. To me, that sounds like a better plan. I want to close with this story. It's a true story. Um, This young man, he spent most of his childhood and teenage years begging his father to come to church with him. His mom always brought him to church since he was a little kid. And he went to children's church and learned about Jesus. And, and then he got older and started going to youth group. And he, he got saved, gave his life to Christ, got baptized in water. And most of his life he spent just praying for God to bring his dad to church. And his dad would always say, no, I don't want to have anything to do with God. I don't need God. That's for you and your mom. I'll be okay. The kid you know, got older. He went to college, moved away. And then on September the 11th, he decided he was going to go visit his father, his family, back in New York. On the way to the airport, he got a flat tire, and he missed his flight. And it just so happened that was the flight that did not make it on 9-11. If he hadn't got the flat tire, he wouldn't be alive today. He was so relieved, so thankful that God spared his life. His dad, your mom, they call him up from New York. And when they heard his voice, they were ecstatic. They were beside themselves. They could not believe that he didn't make the flight, that he's still alive. Everyone was so excited. The family was so grateful. And the father was a retired fireman. He told his son, he said, I can't stay at home and do nothing. I got to go down there to the site and try to help rescue people. That was the last conversation he and his father ever had. That day, his father was killed when the towers had collapsed. The next morning... When his son got the bad news, the joy of having his own life spared turned into sorrow and even confusion. His father would never have anything to do with God, and now it seemed like it was too late. The son was heartbroken, not just at the loss of his father, but not knowing if his dad had ever made peace with God. About three and a half months later, there was a knock on the door, and this young couple shows up at this house. They're holding a little baby. She, was, she said, that, are you so-and-so? He said, I am. She said, I knew your father for a brief moment. Can we come in and tell you a story? He said, sure. They came in. The woman holding the baby explained that she was in the World Trade Center on the day of the attack. She says she was seven months pregnant, and your father came into a room where we were trapped, and he rescued us, and he actually carried me, pregnant and all, down several flights of stairs. She said, on my way down the stairs as he's carrying, carrying me, she said, I, he heard me screaming and crying and praying to Jesus, asking Jesus to save us and to help us. She said, your father told me how God prevented you from getting on one of those planes and how he saved your life. She said, by the time we got down to the bottom of the stairs, we both knelt down on our knees and your dad prayed and asked Jesus to come into his heart. They said, we traveled all this distance, not just to thank you, Not just to give you this good news in person, but we wanted to introduce you to our little son. We named him after your father. (laughs) See, even when people misuse their authority and free will, even when they choose to do the wrong thing and cause pain and hurt in our world, prayers to our sovereign Lord, who always wants to show mercy, will find a way to bring good even in the midst of evil. 2 Corinthians 7, 14, If my people 
who are called by my name will humble themselves. And if they will pray, I'll hear them from heaven. I'll swoop in there like lightning and forgive their sin and heal and deliver and set free and provide if my people will pray. And those are three reasons why we should pray. Amen. 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 Okay, let's.